0: We've really come to embrace the idea that you're going to attend an event with your phone in your hand. How can that be additive? It doesn't have to be subtractive. It doesn't have to be a disruption. It can really be adding to your experience.
1: Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we talk about the business of sports, media, disruption, and we're back together. I'm Joe Favorito along with my co-host, Tom Richardson. Tom, I can't believe we're actually doing one together for the first time. Yeah, and not years. only well,
2: we're together on Zoom, but we were actually together in person 48 hours ago at the first in-person NYVC sports event in over three years. And boy, was that fun. Good to see you.
1: It was, um, we need to do
2: more of that. And as we talked about the, the randomness of
1: running into people, was you know should be tantamount for anybody you know whether you're looking for a job or just trying to rekindle with old friends it's it was incredibly important and i mean i would say we had 110 115 people on a pretty busy week in new york so yeah
2: a a busy week that also was like a, a mid july summer's night you know 80 degree plus new york this weird early summer experience we're having right now but no it was amazing and my main takeaway was the same thing joe i just as i was walking home or back to the station I I was just reminding myself how important getting together in person with your industry Mm -hmm. colleagues is, uh, there's nothing that can replace that. So after a few years of really limited opportunities to do that, it was a real joy to be a part of that. But Joe, I also feel like we should, you know, you should mention where you're doing this pod from, because it may resonate with some people from the Northeast. So why don't you tell everybody where you are right now? So I am sitting in a parking lot overlooking Long
1: Island Sound in New Haven, Connecticut, as a truck goes by behind me. <laughs>
2: this is Joe, <laughs> like doing oh, the old pods on exactly. Broadway when exactly. you hear the ambulances yeah. and the garbage trucks in the background. And
1: I, I had lunch today with two industry veterans in New Haven at Pepe's Pizza with Chris LaPlaca, one of the original employees of ESPN, and Frank Brown, a Hockey Hall of Famer who is um, recently retired from the NHL. So it was a great kind of catch up for them. Um, and, you know, the first time I think I've actually done one of these sitting outside, which is, is different.
2: And that's great. And also, we should give a shout I out to, to that, Pepe's for, for those who don't know. Probably the best um, pizza place but Tom, in Connecticut. I
1: wanted to touch on something. Go ahead. Yeah. There is a box of clam pizza sitting on my floor as a matter of fact right now.
2: So. Oh, wow. All right. Well, if you're going back down 95 and you hit exit 17, you know, feel free to drop it off. I'll drop it off. Okay. Thank you. I wanted to
1: get to our guest. Let's talk a little bit about our guest. So one thing I wanted to say, and you talk about getting back together in person, how do we do that? A lot of times we go to events. A lot of times those events are tied to tickets. So we're going to talk a little bit about the evolution and kind of the disruption and the opportunity that um, the ticketing business, the digital business, um, has the value that it has today, the challenges that it has, um so paula siegel from seat geek and by the way i don't think we've ever done a ticketing podcast time in five years so no, we've not yeah so paula welcome to the cusp show
0: thank you excited to be here excited to be the first
2: yeah well um let's get into it I, i'm not sure if oh. joe mentioned your title but why don't you describe what you're doing and add a little context around it
0: Sure. Uh, so I've been at SeatGeek for the last seven or eight years. Uh, SeatGeek is really a live entertainment platform. Um, so I loved when you said earlier about there you can't match that idea of actually getting together in person because that is, that is why we're here. That's sort of the crux of, of why we are here at SeatGeek is that we think that things are better live in person together. Um, I grew up loving live events, I'm a huge baseball fan, Uh, I will probably tell you 30 times over the course of this podcast about an Orioles game that I went to just yesterday with my dad and my son, an amazing experience, one of those moments that reminds you how magical live events are, but it was about being there together, Um, and so SeatGeek facilitates that. We facilitate amazing fan experiences, and we marry that with rights holders. Uh, What's great for rights holders and how can we bring those two groups together?
2: And talk about your specific role.
0: Oh, sure. Uh, So I lead product for uh, everything that has to do with our fan experience. Um, So if you are attending SeatGeek with the SeatGeek app, if you are searching for and buying tickets, Um, That is all my product team that I lead, uh, as well as all of the supply side of our marketplace.
2: Cool. Um, Joe, I've got a ton of questions here, but you take the next one.
1: Yep. Paula, tell us, for people who don't know, SeatGeek's niche is how important and how is it carved out a very, very crowded space from everybody else?
0: Yeah, uh, I would say that is all about the fan. If you rewind and look around, ticketing wasn't done for fans. It was really done for rights holders. Um, No one said, how do we make this the best experience for fans? And that is where I think SeatGeek's niche came in. Um, We're also uh, an actual product company, a technology company. Um, We think that you can use technology technology, sorry, thoughtfully um, in ways that really improve the experience. And it doesn't mean that we're not looking out for rights holders also. It's more of this theory that if you start with fans and you make sure that fans win, the rights holders and the business, and even ourselves as, as that intermediary connecting fans and rights holders will all win because delivering great products and great experiences for fans helps everyone in the ecosystem win.
2: So, Paula, you, you mentioned um, this idea of product management, or not the, the idea, it is, is a part of business product management, but th- this intersection of technology, user experience, fan engagement, mar- it's, there are marketing elements in it too. It's become really paramount in digital media in the age of mobile and applications for all companies. Mm-hmm. Some companies are doing it well, some companies are not doing it well. It sounds as though you guys really doubled down on that, that specific component, not just having a platform, but having a platform that really works as a legitimate consumer-first product. And you mentioned, I know in your bio, the, the idea of UX, and we talk about my digital class, UI. Um, how, are, how is that all coming together in a company like Seeky? Because there's a lot of people that can weigh in on, quote, product in any company. So how, do, how do you manage all that?
0: Yeah, that is very true. Uh, we are very lucky that our founders, the founders of SeatGeek are, uh, I would describe as product obsessed. And I use obsessed in, in a really positive way there. Yeah. Um, they understand product. They love product. They were our original product managers before we were calling it that. Um, and so that was just kind of imbued into our culture and our DNA. Um, that product management is kind of at the hub of all of those disciplines you mentioned. Um, So I spend my days talking to business stakeholders, uh, to our finance team, to our marketing team, uh, to our account managers, and then also to our engineers, to our designers. We have a team of UX researchers who are talking to our fans uh, and getting insights. We have analysts looking at data. We're bringing all of those things together. And then product management, you can think about kind of at the hub of all that, taking all of these inputs, what are fans saying, what are clients saying, what do our business metrics tell us, and then pour in a a really healthy dose, at least at SeatGeek, of kind of gut instinct for what makes a great product, what Understanding our industry, understanding where our industry is heading, uh, and then prioritizing what to build.
1: So, Tom, she touched on every one of our buzzwords, which was great. User experience, <laughs> disruption, <laughs> know. you know, fun, fan experience. So it's all great. Yeah. Um, can you walk us through a best case scenario of a partnership that you have right now? And then one other thing which we didn't do at the top, I mean, maybe do that first, is tell us how you got there. Like, how did you end up at Seeking? What's your career jersey, journey? So give us the career journey and then give us a best practice would be great.
0: Great. Uh, well, I love that you said career journey uh, because it's a journey. And, and sometimes you know people so often say career path. And when you say path, I picture this like straight paved road somehow. And that yeah. is not what's, been my- With signposts along arc-
2: the way directing you.
0: <laughs> exactly. And that, not only has that not been my experience, but it is- not what I uh, advise other people to do, it is I always uh, advise people to, you know, take the the non-linear path, um, so to speak. So I actually started at Columbia uh, as a grad student, having no idea what I wanted to do in the world, but knowing that I loved learning. Just That is something that I thank my parents for all the time, that they really taught me from a young age is just the love of learning. And that is a valuable pursuit. Um, It doesn't always pay you, uh, but it is a a really valuable pursuit. And so I got my master's at Columbia um, in medieval studies, which is clearly very connected to what I do today. Um, Well, you got to give us
2: 30 seconds on that, medieval studies. Tell us about the motivation To do that, because that's not what you studied at NYU undergrad, I I believe. So medieval studies is a very unusual graduate degree. Just tell us about that for a second.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so NYU, one of the things that they really push is study abroad. Um, And so I spent a semester in Italy uh, taking classes with a medievalist. Uh, Shout out to Penny Johnson, who said, you know what, I really think you could make a career out of this uh, and recommended me for this very small graduate program that Columbia has in medieval studies. Uh, They just take a handful of people each year. Um, And because I wasn't quite ready to grow up when I graduated college and I loved learning, um, I applied and I think I was admitted like the day before college graduation, so I really wasn't sure what I was doing uh, in May of of my senior year. And then, lo and behold, I end up at Columbia, uh, where I always say time amazingly well spent. I learned how to think critically in a way that I never had before. I learned how to communicate in a way that I never had before. you know maybe maybe no one cares about like my thesis on medieval franciscan's and the conventuals versus the spiritualists uh, that doesn't come up much in my day-to-day life but the thinking the critical thinking and the learning how to express my thoughts that i did for that comes up i use that every single day
2: that's great yeah i'm just like the the idea of critical thinking particularly in this advancing age of ai uh, there's still value in critical thinking and something you don't think about when you're young, but as you continue through your career, all of us continue through our career journeys, you realize that's kind of what it comes down to. Like the factual part of it is not that hard to get. It's usually the ability to synthesize those facts and apply some critical thought against it to make progress <laughs> in whatever job you have. So it's a phrase I use a lot in my class, uh, just developing the, you know, the, this. Ability to to develop it. And and by the way, it's not a an on-off switch. It's just something that gets better, I think, as you get older Uh, and get more experience. A
0: hundred percent. And then you know, you develop your unique voice. And when I write something and I write a lot at my job, one of the best compliments I get is for someone to say, I didn't even know your name was on this, but I knew you wrote it because it sounded like your voice.
2: Nice. So then how did you transition out of that into? Uh, You know, without the signpost in front of you, the journey continued and you ended up kind of in tech and the startup world, sounds like.
0: Yes, I made a very abrupt left turn. Uh, I'll give you the abbreviated version, um, which is that my last semester at Columbia, my mom was very ill. She ended up having a kidney transplant uh, and a brain tumor removed, all in the space of a few months. Um, and I was commuting back and forth between New York and DC, where she was. And I was just flabbergasted. This is in 2007, and I would like read on Twitter what my friends had for lunch that day. But my mom's doctors, she was she was simultaneously being seen at Hopkins in Baltimore and uh, also down in a hospital in DC, and they didn't know what each other was prescribing for her or what tests they were running, and that was. Just crazy to me, uh, and it's not that electronic medical records didn't exist, but it was still pretty nascent. Um, and I just realized that that is something that was worthwhile spending my time on. Uh, and so, I completely BSed my way into my first tech job. Um, and that is career advice I will always I will always give: uh, is you can you can actually fake it till you make it. Uh, I think I read a couple books. Um, I knew how to use Dreamweaver, which was relevant at the time. Uh, And I got into tech that way. And and I really kind of fell into a job at the time. It was called Web Producer, um, uh, which kind of evolved into product management. And I was very lucky to have great mentors along the way, Um, a mentor who taught me to program um, you know, people who taught me design and I was very fortuitous to have great people around me. Uh, and I didn't have signposts. I kind of just followed, uh, followed this and followed that. And and I followed opportunities that were interesting and that I was confident I would learn. I worked in 3d printing for a while. It was a new technology. I was really interested in it. Uh, I, and eventually I landed at SeatGeek, um, which is a great culmination. I grew up, I mentioned a huge sports fan, a huge live events fan. Um, if you asked me when I was a kid, I would have told you I wanted to grow up to be an athlete, which my mom at some point is going to listen to this and laugh and say, we we're never going to be an athlete because I'm not actually good at sports. I just love them. Uh, I was like the kid in the swimming races where everyone was clapping for at the end when I finished. Uh, But I loved it. I swam competitively until I went to college. I have a love of sports. I'm not good at sports. uh, But getting to work in the industry and enable other people to share that love has honestly been a dream come true. I don't mean to be cheesy, but it really has been. Uh, I found my home when I came here and they'll have to push me out one day if they want me to leave.
2: So I'll just remind you of Joe's uh part 2 which was um any particular partnership or relationship for the company that you're involved with that you can talk about and 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 kind of be illustrative of kind of what you know what best practices are for you guys.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we signed the Dallas Cowboys uh, it was January 2018. It was like January 30th. I know this because uh, we signed the contract the same day I found out I was pregnant with my child. So I always joked that I was birthing two children or growing two two babies at the same time. Uh, and I grew up in the D.C. area. I grew up a big Commanders fan. Uh, we hated the Cowboys as Commanders fans. There was big rivalries in the 90s. Uh, And I didn't expect to fall in love with the organization. But I talked a lot about SeatGeek being fan first and caring about the fans. And the Cowboys truly care about their fans in a way that um, not every organization is able to. They have such a solid fan base and committed fan base and Uh, A lot of that is because they give back as an organization to their fans. And so they have been a wonderful partner because they really subscribe to this idea of starting with fans. What is the fan experience? How can we push it forward? How can we be the best in the business? Um, And then getting to work backwards from there. What does the best fan experience look like? And then work backwards to how we actually build that and then how we make it make sense from a, a revenue perspective.
2: One of the lines I noticed in your bio was this idea of an event ticket being a personal concierge. And I was intrigued by that thought. Can you describe what that means or at least how you envision it developing as the technology advances?
0: Yeah. So if you rewind, let's rewind even 10 years, uh, you are a season ticket holder. Uh, and you know, that moment that I grew up again, an Oriole season ticket holder. And I remember that moment that the, your season tickets came in the mail and you had that whole booklet and we're talking physical paper tickets. And I admit, I am like a very nostalgic person. Uh, my husband would tell you that I'm a hoarder, but I keep every one of those ticket stubs, love them. Um, But at the end of the day, it was just a piece of paper, and it got me into the ballpark, and that's it. Mm -hmm. got me into the ballpark, I put the ticket stub in my back pocket, and then later on I took it home and I pinned it up on my my bulletin board. Now, tickets are all mobile, and we don't have that, that paper stub anymore, but we can do so much more with a ticket. So it can be your event day concierge. Um, You know, you you scan in with your ticket, but what else can you do? What can you do leading up to it? How can we provide a platform for engagement between teams or artists and fans? Um, If I'm going to a concert, maybe I want to listen to the set list or get to know the opening act beforehand so I can sing along when I get there. If I'm going to see, you know, my favorite team, I want to be, you know, brushing up on my stats, uh, or maybe I want to be communicating with other fans, uh, ordering new team merch, and then I scan in, and there's, you know, such a world of possibility of what you can do, uh, whether it is like mobile food and beverage ordering. Uh, again, I was at an Orioles game yesterday, uh, I was there with my four-year-old son. I cannot tell you how many times, uh, we walked up and down, uh, to the concourse to get, it was 90 degrees. We, we must've bought 10 bottles of water one by one going back and forth. And, uh, he started off wanting French fries and then he wanted a hot dog and then he wanted ice cream. Uh, and you know, I should be able to just do all of that from my app, uh, Maybe I order it from my app and I go pick it up. Maybe I order it from my app and it magically appears next to me because that ticket tells you where I'm sitting. You already know my payment method because I used it to buy the tickets. There's so many things I can do in just a few taps for my phone uh, that really improve the event experience.
2: So I know one of the other things that you'd mentioned was this idea of approaching things a little bit differently with kind of the next generation of fan who may be like digital first and kind of thinking of it from a psychological standpoint differently than maybe the more sentimental older friends Like you, I, cle- I collect tickets. To, I've been collecting ticket subs for 30 years for concerts, sporting events, Broadway, et cetera. And it's one of my treasured possessions because it just all bring, it brings back so many great memories. So, so this idea of bringing something into the mix that would satisfy a digital, a sophisticated digital user, perhaps with a different attitude, but also give them the option to have something IRL, something physical, mm-hmm. some of these new NFT companies are doing where they're, where they're bridging the two worlds. Is, is that something in consideration as well, as it relates, especially yeah. as it relates to young people?
0: Yeah. So we believe that young people are really undervalued when it comes to live events. And that's been a big part of our growth story is really trying to reach that younger generation of fans. Uh, We've partnered with a lot of influencers to reach younger fans and have really a great loyal group of younger fans. But to your point, these are fans that are are very digital first. Uh, They're always gonna have a phone in their hand. Um, you know, there's there's lots that have been written about declining uh, event attendance, especially on the sports side with younger fans not going to events in person. Um, why should I get off of my couch, my comfy couch with my big TV and my laptop and my phone and all of these things? Um, we still fully believe in the power of live events and coming to experience it live, but I used to sort of joke, you know, when they used to talk about a two screen experience, I feel like for a while in ads, uh, even for sports broadcasts, it was always two screen experience. I should watch on my TV and I should look at something else on my phone. Uh, But we've really come to embrace the idea that you're going to attend an event with your phone in your hand. How can that be additive? It doesn't have to be subtractive. It doesn't have to be a disruption. It can really be adding to your experience. Um, whether that is stats or trivia or connecting with other fans in the stadium, maybe you've linked to some social media profile and you didn't even know that a friend of yours is at the same event, uh, but we're able to let you know that. Um, So there's so many things that you can add to the experience, especially with that younger generation in mind.
2: But any option of adding something if they wanted to, let's say, Print something out afterwards, or even a three D printer, perhaps whatever, like some something to go along with that digital experience.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think there are some very interesting things that are being done with NFTs specifically in this space. Uh, sort of that, like collectible memorabilia. Um, An interesting thing that the NFL has done the last few years uh, is when they moved away from physical Super Bowl tickets to mobile Super Bowl tickets, they still actually do create physical collectible tickets. Uh, that they distribute to fans attending. It's not how you scan into the event. Uh, and I think generally you actually get it after the Super Bowl. But for those really amazing experiences, like especially bucket list experiences, um, I definitely think there are interesting ways that we can be working to provide something something physical for fans. Uh, and again, for the younger ones, uh, right. NFTs, which aren't quite physical, but are still something you can, you can hang on to.
1: So that that was actually my question is, you said you went to a game the other night and you don't know what happens at that game. And I've had these conversations with senior people, teams, and they're like, oh, nobody wants a ticket stuff. But if you can order it on demand, we've seen the on-demand economy grow. It's counterintuitive as to why that wouldn't be part of the process. So the the question is, Tom, give me a thumbs up if you can hear me. Mm -hmm. So the question becomes, if I wanted to order the ticket stuff, afterwards and I wanted to pay for it. Why would that be something that I could not do today? Or why shouldn't that be part of the process and the experience going forward?
0: Joe, that is an excellent question. You should come join the product team at SeatGeek because that is exactly what I'm asking (laughs) people to think about is why shouldn't fans be able to do X?
2: You can start Uh, on Monday, Paula.
0: Excellent. 9
2: a.m. and the,
1: re- the reason why I bring that up is like, you just mentioned you went to an Orioles game. What if there was a no hitter last night? And then people walk away and say, I ha- don't have anything tangible from this night. It just, and by the way, I'm willing to pay for it. You already have all my data. Yeah. And I could create something with a local artist. I've talked to teams about this. Create a local artist that's a, a a takeaway. It doesn't have to be in the world we're in today. It shouldn't be an all or nothing thing, right? It should be, if this is part of my experience, and I want something tangible, like I want a game program, maybe I should be able to get it.
0: I, I, am, I am right there with you. I, I came prepared. Unfortunately, your listeners will not be able to see, but I will describe that I am holding up a dirty baseball, which after 40 years of going to Orioles games yesterday, yep. for the first time, I left with a game ball. It wasn't in my pocket. It was in my son's pocket. Uh, And I will admit he didn't catch a foul ball. Uh, We just were fortunate to have very good seats uh, and it was slipped to him by a player under the net. Um, But it reminded me of that. Like, you know, this was a, a, an amazing moment for me and for my dad, my son didn't fully appreciate it because he's four and he thought, Oh, cool. You get a baseball when you go to a baseball game. But it had me thinking about this a lot also of, you know, those actual physical things that I can hold I'm going to keep this ball for the rest of my life I'll probably take it away from my yep. son and just keep it in my memorabilia because I'll appreciate it more um, and that yes absolutely I am right there with you uh, about ways that we can connect those things for fans that want it
2: can we switch gears for a second and talk a little bit another a topic that I believe that you're um, very thoughtful and passionate about which is the representation of women in the sports business and in the tech world. Uh, and by the way, when I saw that description, it, it reminded me of the actual organization, WIST, which you may have heard of, Women in Sports and Tech. Our friend Elise yep. Sowell is involved and some other people we know. So talk about that for a minute, because this has been something that's come up through the years for me and Joe as veterans of the sports business where there's been pretty severe gender imbalance. And I know that's been the case in the technology market, which I'm involved with too, uh, as well. So. Give us your thoughts on that like where we are and where you hope it will go.
0: Yeah, uh, where we are. We are so much better than where we were 10 years ago. We have only scratched the surface. Um, so I don't think that I set out in my career to have this be, you know my my passion area. Um, It was really that one day I opened my eyes and looked around me and said, wow, nobody else looks like me around here. Um, And because I took a little bit more of a circuitous career path, I was a little older when I got to the point of, hey, I'm in my 30s and and I'm firmly working in tech now and I'm the only woman here Uh, or maybe there's two women here. And being a little bit more into my career, I felt comfortable saying, you know what? I can make a change. I'm not super young. I'm not super, at the beginning of your career, often you're looking for people who look like you around you when you go to an organization. And that's why it's so important to start establishing that. Um, So whether it's been at SeekEek or at other places, uh, making sure that we have very, very visible female representation. Really, at all levels, um, it's been something that I've been passionate about. At SeatGeek, we've made huge strides um, and really put an emphasis on diversity within our organization and growing that. Um, and then trying to partner with other organizations as well to make sure that we're encouraging, uh, you know, all, all, everyone to enter tech, to enter sports. Uh, Gender should not be a reason that you don't go into any particular profession, the color of your skin, all of those things. um, We want a a diverse community. We'll have much better conversations. We'll have more unique insights uh, if we bring all of those things to the table. Uh, And the other thing at SeatGeek for me that, that has been big is when I myself became a parent, Um, is highlighting what it's like to be a working parent and a working mother and all of the things that we're juggling here and and really trying to uh, put that front and center for us to understand all of the things that we're doing not at work.
2: Well, I know statistically we've been hearing the last couple of years that females are graduating at a higher percentage than males at this point from undergraduate. Are we seeing an increased participation in technology in the technology education world, uh, graduate degrees in computer science, uh, some of some of the academies and things like that, where there's more females percentage-wise than there was, let's say, 10 years ago?
0: Yeah, we are seeing an increase. Again, it's not big enough. Um, so I like to celebrate the wins, uh, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. We have a long way to go. Um, and whether it is you know, uh, I am t- I have a, a fifth birthday party to go to on Sunday for my son. And I am always the one, it's uh, his friend Alice. And I am the one saying, oh, what toys can I get for Alice to uh, get her interested in technology at age five? I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's important to be talking to the 15 year olds about where they're still very impressionable about going into technology. Uh, and reaching people in college and beyond. Um, so yes, we are, we're seeing improvements and I wanna celebrate them, uh, but the job is far from over.
1: Cool. Uh, Paul, I have one last question before we get to our last two questions, which Tom will lead. The elephant in the room, the ticket cost and, and how that gets added on, how does SeatGeek address that going forward as to what, what's affordable for fans? and how does that tie into the fan experience?
0: Uh, I just wanna make sure I heard you correctly because the, the audio is a little jumble. You said the ticket cost?
2: The, co-
1: the cost, and how does that tie into the experience for fans? Inclu- and Joe, fans I think you're the
2: also kids. suggesting the, the fees on top of the of the face value.
1: You're well, I, I didn't wanna say that, but Tom asked the
2: question anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I said it.
1: <laughs> okay, well, I figured uh, I was reading
0: between the lines, but I would let yeah. you say it say it out loud. Uh, so, you know, SeaGeek, for as long as we've been around, over a decade, has believed in all-in pricing, and we still do believe in all-in pricing. And all-in pricing is the idea that you tell fans the entire cost of the ticket up front. We believe that that is best for fans uh, for many, many, many years. Uh, we've only ever showed all-in prices Um but we're also a company with a lot of competitors who show prices and fees differently. Uh, so we're bullish on the idea that we all show fans the all-in price, and that's the best experience. Um, and we we are happy to keep working on that to make that a reality. Um, as far as costs, uh, you know, it's, it is... Very much a function of supply and demand. Demand is up right now, astronomically. Coming out of the pandemic, uh, we all sat at home for a really long time, and we want to get out there. Um, and you know, venues have a fixed capacity. Uh, supply is more fixed. Uh, we do have a lot of artists who are doing interesting things, uh, like playing more shows at one stadium uh, or one venue to drive down costs, um, less so in the, in the sports world where we have a fixed schedule. Uh, although you see many leagues trying to expand that as well. Um, but you know, uh, we do not control the cost of tickets. Um, we connect, we connect supply and demand at SeatGeek. Um, but those two things do obviously balance themselves out.
2: All right, Joe, I actually want to throw in one more, uh, biz question because I, I, it occurred to me that everything we've been reading about the last couple of months on the subject of AI has to has to be addressed as it relates to ticketing. So we probably would need more time for a full discussion, Paul on this. So if you can want if just want to do a brief answer for now, maybe we'll talk about it again in the future. but and I'll ask it like I'm I'm Tony Kornheiser, or Mike Wolbon on PTI. AI, big deal or little deal for the ticketing business.
0: Oh, so I like to refer to myself as a Luddite uh, in a in a lovable, good way uh, in that I love technology, but I'm skeptical about it. Uh, I don't think that, you know, uh, every new technology is going to change the world or change how we do things. Um, And so I think that is sort of how we think about things at SeatGeek, uh, is we embrace technology. We love technology. We're a tech company, um, but we don't chase after shiny new things. We figure out where there's real value. Where is AI actually creating value for fans? And then that's great. Let's integrate it into our product uh, we use a, a sort of AI chatbot for our customer support uh, when you're first trying to, if you have a problem with your tickets um, before you talk to a real person, you know, some people want to talk to a real person. They might want to pick up the phone and they might want to talk to someone. And that's great. We facilitate that. I have like a fear of talking on the phone. I will avoid it at all costs. And I would much rather talk to the chat bot. Uh, And I want to do it in the middle of the night when I'm finally free and done with my other things for the day. Uh, So, you know, to, to directly answer your question, little deal. Um, Interesting. But I I think there are thoughtful ways to drive value, but that we should never embrace things just for the buzzword.
2: Yeah. I just, I was listening to the all in podcast earlier today where, and these guys have been obsessed with, with AI and, and uh, all the implications and they painted a picture uh, that would apply to ticketing, where you would essentially go into an AI solution um, such as ChatGPT, and you'd say something like, Hey, um, I want to go to the Knicks' first home opener, excuse me, playoff game, which they haven't had, uh, you know, uh, everybody's anticipating this game next week, and I'm willing to pay up to $300. You just basically put in all the characteristics and essentially would actually complete the entire process for you assuming the best option for me, let's say, through an API from SeatGeek was SeatGeek. And literally, that would be completed entirely through AI. And I I don't know if that's fanciful, but it kind of makes sense to me. So just any quick thought on that before we move to the the final segment?
0: I think that is entirely possible. And where I'm skeptical is that Do you not have some very particular thoughts about where you want to see? And might you spend a lot more money on that Knicks playoff game? Because it means a lot to you to be there uh, than the AI would normally think that your your budget is. like? How many questions is ChatGPT going to have to ask me to know what I really want for these really special experiences?
2: That's fair. Yeah. Anyway, it's an interesting thought because it... um, Someone was even saying that this would just become all voice-based. You wouldn't even be using applications, uh, which which I could envision if all the technology is connected properly. It's a very interesting thought because there's so many implications for the sports business and the entertainment business. But uh, for another discussion in the future, so, Paula, we ask all our guests two standardized questions. You've addressed uh, one of them a little bit, but we'll go back to it in a second. But the first one is always, how do you stay smart? How do you keep up with everything? What are you reading, listening to, following, et cetera?
0: Mm, so lately, how do I say smart? Uh, I, I do a lot of puzzles, like word puzzles and crossword puzzles. I realize that's not you know, necessarily what am I reading, uh, but I'm very big proponent of exercising your brain in different ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, I do Wordle and Quirtle and Octurtle like everyone else, but I also do crossword puzzles or letterboxed on New York Times, uh, and, and any kind of those word or number puzzles I can get my hands on just to keep my brain active and and engaged in different ways than I do on a day-to-day basis.
2: Oh, that's Joe. That's a first, that answer. And by the way, I really like that answer. Just keeping your brain, um, coming along well, so so good for you. Um, and then on the career front, we've got a lot of young people listening getting their careers going, maybe a few years into their careers, etc. Kind of advice would you give young people at this point at this moment in history with the with the tumultuous nature of the marketplace we live in uh, in technology, in marketing, media, sports, etc?
0: It is not a race. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier career paths versus journeys and and taking a non-linear journey. Uh, you know, your career is not a checklist of things to check off. Uh, there is no race to the top. If you get to the top at 40, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? If you get to the, you know, I, I turned 40 in a week, maybe two weeks, I've lost track of the date. Uh, and I don't know what I want to be when I grow up and I don't, ever want to know what I want to be when I grow up uh, that's part of the fun that's part of the challenge um, and so I do see a lot of of younger people they're so focused on what they want to do what they're trying to achieve how long it's going to take them to achieve them but it's a journey and it's about the journey and it's taking time uh, Not every job is going to be perfectly aligned with what you're trying to do, and that's okay. Uh, Take the opportunities as they come. Uh, Sometimes take the job you're passionate about that doesn't pay you as much money. Sometimes it's okay to take the job that pays you a lot of money so that you can then fuel the passion project later, Um, but but keep yourself open to opportunities and don't feel like you have to walk in a, a straight linear path.
2: One one quick follow-up, Joe, that I think would be interesting for everybody to hear. You probably do a lot of hiring. What are the, let's say, two or three most important soft skills, not hard skills, that you look for when you're interviewing people?
0: Communication, 100%. Sometimes I am just making small talk with folks that I am, am interviewing because I want to get them into their real natural communication patterns and understand how they express themselves. It is, you know, communication is number one, two, and three for me. Uh, it is all about how you communicate, how you express yourself, whether it's talking, whether it's writing, uh, and that is the most important thing.
1: So when, oh, when does Paula want to join us on the faculty, Tom? Yeah, well,
2: <laughs> that's a great idea. Uh, we'll talk about yeah. that. Uh, um, I would gosh, love to be so-
0: back at Columbia.
2: Yeah. You know what 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 uh, wrap us up? What, what spots on Columbia, what what buildings were you hanging out on the most when you were there?
0: Oh, you know what? My absolute favorite thing about Columbia campus is just that you get off the one at 116th 1 and you walk through the gates and you're transported. Yeah. It was never about a particular building. It was just the idea of I had lived in New York for years at that point. I went to NYU undergrad, uh, but you go uptown, you go through that gate and you're Totally transported into this, like, to me, very romanticized manifestation of uh, that, like, collegiate campus uh, where learning is literally hanging in the air. You can find those grassy spots, you have the quad, you can hang out on the library steps. Um, Gosh, I love the campus there.
2: That's great. Um, Joe. Great. Great convo. That was fun. Uh, thanks for setting it up. Uh, Paul, where can people find you if they're looking for you, uh, those listeners? Uh, are you doing anything on social LinkedIn or whatever?
0: Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, that's that's mostly where you'll find me. I have to admit, I've given up tweeting uh, and my Instagram is filled with pictures of my son, so you will not easily find me. Uh, but please do come connect on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm Paula Siegel. And I look forward to uh, having an influx of your listeners.
2: All right, Joe, you want to take it home?
1: Honestly, that was great. And and, uh, I know my audio has been a little bit spotty, but it's been a great listen. The best thing, Tom, I think Paula hit on every buzzword that we want in the last 45 minutes,
2: which was amazing. (laughs) It sounded like she used ChatGPT to say, go through Tom's syllabus of the digital media class and come up with a good podcast conversation. Uh, because Paul, it's a lot of the stuff we talk about in my particular class. Uh, but I, I look, it's so important, it, it's so essential right now that everybody gets some kind of grasp on this, this intersection that we talked about at the beginning of the convo between the the tech and and the marketing and this, and I would say the sociology and the cultural aspects of all this. It's just it's a really interesting um intersection so thank you paula siegel we really appreciate it and we wish you luck continued good luck at SeatGeek. joe thank you again pleasure to be back doing another pod on even if it's on zoom i guess that's what we're fated to the sh-
1: on the shores of long island sound tom This is yeah wisdom.
2: all right well again don't forget that clam pizza exit 17 off of 95 as you're going south i'll be uh, standing by uh ready to receive it uh thanks everybody for listening and we'll see you on the next episode